Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. All right, welcome aboard. It is a Friday, the 22nd of May, and this is the year 2020 of our Lord. You get the impression that 2020 is going to be one of those years we look back on, kind of like, I don't know, maybe 1913 was looked at at one of those years when the World War I started, the Federal Reserve was given to us, given to us, forced upon us, the income tax. <laughs> you know, if you, want, if you want to talk to true freedom lovers or people who know a little bit about history, you ask them, what was one of the worst years for freedom in general? And the ones who are in the know will mostly say, well, 1913, that was a pretty bad year. That was, that was an ugly one. I think 2020 may be one of those years we look back on. And yet, it's not to say that everything is bad. It's just pointing out that uh, we've had more than our fair share of challenges, and we're not even halfway through the year. I think we're all going to come out of this better people, those of us who survive. <laughs> but uh, no, actually, I'm, I think this is where we're finding out a lot about ourselves. And I got to tell you, I'm very impressed with the leadership that I have seen emerge in some people. In fact, since, since well, I was going to brag on my friend Eric Mutsos, but I think I may have him on the line with me. So let's go to the phone and see. Hello there. Oh, are you expecting a call, uh, Brian? I, I was. I was. Okay. Uh, you're not Eric Mutsos, Mutsos rather, but I'm no, sure I'm you're, not, li- no, you're no, learning, learning to live with it. Sam, let me finish my thought here real quick, and then let's, I'll take your call here. Um, okay. Eric has stepped up as one of the most decisive leaders that I have seen, not because people elected him, not because anybody drafted him and said, we want you to do this, but just because he saw a need and has stepped up to fill it. And there's a lesson in there, and I'll come back to that a little bit later. Tell me what's on your mind, Sam. Well, first of all, I agree with you. Some of the stuff I've seen from uh, Eric has just been wonderful, you know, that's been happening here lately. And uh, so I, I agree, absolutely. I got to know the guy better after he quit doing the radio show than I did during the time he was doing his show over there. So it's kind of interesting. Well, and he, st- he stopped doing the radio show because he was too busy, you know, making a living, caring for his family, and just, you know, taking care of business. And now yeah. uh, <laughs> he's, uh, he's had leadership kind of thrust upon him. Yeah. Um, my comment, I want to ask you, did you see an interesting article up on Luke Rockwell called Help, I'm in an Abusive Relationship? Yeah, the video. I actually watched the yeah. video the other day. I did, too. It's quite fascinating. Uh, the way this, this gal's brilliant, the way she put this together. Cause, uh, and I'm just going to leave it up to the audience to guess who the abuser really is. You won't have to wait too long. But I, no, you I, won't. I saw what she was doing. When she started, I was like, wow, legit, you know, because I couldn't tell for sure. Is she talking, what's she talking about? But she does. She sets the stage, talks about uh, the signs of an abusive relationship, which most people would recognize. Oh, my gosh, that does sound, that's terrible. Why would you stay in a relationship like that? And then she drops the bomb. Right. Well, sometimes you don't have a choice. <laughs> there you go. And I, I was wondering uh, if the video looked as interesting as the audio. You know, obviously, being a blind guy, I heard the audio of it. But uh, I was so fascinated by it, I thought... You know, I thought, man, this is absolutely brilliant. I mean, uh, the visuals the on the video are, are not they're not as, as striking as simply the idea and the, the parallel that she is drawing between, you know, a, a woman caught in an abusive relationship and what we can all learn from from, you know, her misfortune. Right. Because unfortunately, and I, again, I'll leave the audience to, to figure it out when they go up there because you, you'll figure it out pretty quick. We're all in the abusive relationship, whether we want to be or not. Yep. 
That we and are. And I'll, I'll just leave it at that. But I just wanted to run that by you. That uh, I, I wanted to, I wanted to get everybody, uh, everybody's attention on that. Go over and catch that because once you watch that, it puts it in a whole new frame of of, uh, of light that maybe we never looked at before. You know, it's kind of like. Um, it's kind of like the abuser who uh, who gaslights you and plays games with you. Well, that's what this abuser does all the time, and we put up with it. Yep, without a doubt. That's all I got. Okay, Sam, thank you. Now, yeah. s- specifically, one of the things I wanted to bring up about Eric Mutsos, I, I was hoping to catch up with him, but like I said, the guy is insanely busy. Is uh, you know Maybe you heard yesterday that uh, the, the concert that was scheduled for Kaysville has been relocated. And, you know, it's hard. I don't want to dwell on the negative part, which is that because there were some within the Kaysville city government who really got fearful. And I mean, fearful to the point that they were like, oh, we've we have some authority at our disposal. How can we use this to, to force a solution on everybody so that our fears, you know, can be assuaged? Well, OK, maybe I would do the same if I was in their situation. I want to believe that maybe I wouldn't. But uh, with uh, with Kaysville becoming increasingly hostile, or at least some members of their city government becoming increasingly hostile, a new location was found. Thankfully, this May 30th event, that's a week from tomorrow, which will feature country music legend Colin Ray, is going to be held at the Studio Ranch Amphitheater near Grantsville. Now, here's the nice thing about it. It's a nice little drive. It's on private property, so it's not like we're going to have to kneel and kiss the ring of this health expert or this, you know, uh, municipal authority. I kind of get the impression they like that. A little power goes a long way. Uh, No, that's not going to be necessary. This is on private property. There is room for up to 300 businesses to participate. And this is important because this is part of the Utah business revival. It's about getting back to work. It's about resuming our lives. And I understand if you're like me, you probably feel like, well, yeah, well, I also want to make sure that people understand I'm protesting all of this lockdown and this artificial interruption of our lives brought about by people who are absolutely dependent on what experts or at least certain experts are telling them about how, you know, this is so dangerous that nobody can do anything the way they did before. We're going to talk a little bit more about uh, that reliance on experts. But the bottom line here is there is no better expert as to what is an acceptable amount of risk in your life than you. But you see, we've been told for a long time, and there are those who continue to tell us. And I think, sadly, the Kaysville uh, City Council has some folks who have, have helped perpetuate this idea that, you know, you're broken. You're not smart enough. You're not qualified to make these kind of decisions for yourself. So we will make it for you as if they are, you know, the, the parent. The state is is to them not just a parent to us, but kind of a hybrid between God and a parent. Now, you have to do this. Thou shalt socially distance. Thou shalt not gather in groups larger than 50. Thou shalt seek a permit and shalt seek permission from thine leaders, blah, blah, blah. And some people actually find comfort in that. It's like, okay, well, that, that's the kind of structure I need. That's the, the direction I want to go because someone is making all the tough decisions for me. I don't have to shoulder any responsibility. I don't have to really learn what the risks are and decide, am I willing to accept that risk? I just do what I'm told, and, and it takes a lot of the heat off of me, or it takes the weight of responsibility from my shoulders. Now, if that sounds offensive, it's, if it sounds like, man, you sound like you're describing a bunch of little children— Well, it kind of does, doesn't it? And yet uh, the stunning thing is there are clearly a lot of people who prefer that mentality 
to the risk and, as, as Thomas Jefferson would have said, the tumultuous sea of liberty. Because there's always going to be risk. You don't think about it. In some things, we're actually okay with accepting risk. Every time you get behind the wheel of your car, I promise you have a higher percentage or a higher likelihood of dying or being seriously injured than you do of contracting and dying from coronavirus. The odds are very great. I mean, come on, you've got thousands, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people out there daily piloting missiles of a ton and a half to two or three tons down the road at high speeds, everybody making their own independent decisions. Which lane am I going to be in? How fast will I go? You know, where, you know, where will I turn off? Now, yeah, there are some rules of the road that we follow. But as far as making our own decisions about where we're going, what route we're going to take to get there, how fast we will drive when we go, that's pretty much up to us. Well, what about the speed limit? Okay, it's a suggestion. Trust me, I've driven enough in northern Utah that um, it's it's a suggestion and a kind of a questionable suggestion for a lot of people. Um, I think I have a bit of a lead foot and people blow by me on a regular basis. So what do you do? Well, you know the answer. Stay to the right unless you're passing. That's the simple answer. But the bottom line is you can be trusted to make these kinds of decisions. There are risks And there will always be risks. And you have walked among people carrying various kinds of illnesses, bacterial or viral, that you never even knew about. Because your body successfully fought off whatever it was this person may have had. And the coronavirus is no different. But this mindset of, well, but we've got to cower down. You know, we've got to stay completely strictly separated with barriers between us and, you know, strict distancing and masks for everybody. If it makes you feel safer, I would say by all means you should do that. But I have to draw the line at the idea that we have to force everybody else to do this. And only when an expert, someone cloaked in some degree of what they imagine as authority or some, some degree of expertise, maybe it's actually a college degree, until they tell us what to do, our job is to shut up and wait for further instructions. I don't think that that's, uh, that's at all what we need. It's not going to cure what ails us. And if we want to see... Some degree of uh, prosperity, happiness, and and even life return to the lives we're supposed to be living. We're just going to have to be bold, weigh the risks, and go out there and seize the opportunities as we can without seeking permission. Who would have thought one of the most subversive things that a person could suggest in this, the year 2020, is simply go about your life. We'll take a quick break. We'll be back. This is Loving Liberty. Stay with us. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. 801-331-8113 is the number. So for, for those who are planning on attending the May 30th concert featuring country legend Colin Ray, it will be taking place between 6 and 10 p.m. at Studio Ranch Amphitheater near Grantsville. They're asking people, bring a lawn chair, bring your family, and come prepared to help support, I guess, as many businesses as are willing to show up there. The, one, the, the event that they did in Vineyard here a few weeks back was incredible. And for some of these businesses, I've seen testimonials from some of the businesses that participated who said, you know, this made the difference. This was the difference between us being able to pay the rent or not. 
So they were very thankful for a chance to get out there and engage in commerce. And I got to tell you, this was not, you know, they, they weren't doing it. Ah, look at us. We're French kissing every customer to show just how little we're scared of coronavirus. Some people wore masks. Some wore gloves. They used social distancing as best they could. They, they all adapted as best they could, but still managed to serve the people around them. And there was a lot of different businesses. It wasn't just, you know, people selling food. It was many different businesses that that came out and benefited from this. So I would encourage you, if you have the time and the inclination, you should really check it out. I'll put a link in the show notes from the utahbusinessrevival.com blog, and it'll give you a little bit more information. But I, I strongly recommend, don't... Don't spend too much time, and I'm trying not to spend too much time focusing on the uh, the sour milk people, you know, in the Kaysville city government who, you know, were threatening, we'll use whatever we have to do if we have to, you know, bring dogs and fire hoses. Okay, not the fire hoses, just sprinklers, actually, in their case. We're going to stop this free concert from taking place. Well, thankfully... An alternative location has been located. It is on private property. So the busybodies are just going to have to stand there and make frustrated noises, apparently, uh, while people go back to uh, living their lives, enjoying themselves, and again, supporting area businesses. No tickets required. Bring a lawn chair, though. You'll need one. And if you are a small business and you want to have a free booth at this event, this is the thing. Uh, the booth isn't even going to cost you. You'll want to visit utahbusinessrevival.com to request one. But you might want to get a move on because space is limited. Now, this brings up an interesting attitude, and my friend Connor Boyack, I thought, had a brilliant take yesterday about this dependence we have on experts. Well, we shouldn't be doing stuff like this until experts say that it's okay. And specifically, he was referring to the CDC's school reopening guidelines. This was all over Facebook yesterday. And it's funny because one of one of my more um, progressive friends, first thing he was posting was, look, this is a debunking thing. He, I don't know if he went to Snopes or some other site, but this is totally false. These are not uh, these are not mandates. So I want you to hear what Connor Boyack had to say. It's not even so much about the recommendations as the fact that people are standing there with their hat in their hand, waiting for someone to tell them how it's going to be. Connor Boyack says there was some pushback on yesterday's post about the CDC's school reopening guidelines, contending, well, they were just recommendations to be implemented by schools as feasible and such. Sure, he says, right. But look at the past few months. The CDC's guidelines or recommendations or suggestions or positions or whatever you want to call them have been rigidly implemented by countless politicians across the country. Because who among them wants to look like they're going against the experts? Now, he says, I didn't suggest that they were mandates. The graphic didn't say that. My post didn't say that. The link I shared in the post didn't say that. But when the experts play Messiah and say what shall be necessary to be safe... Then school principals, superintendents, mayors, governors, etc. will often adhere to such statements for fear of being shamed or sued. If it's, it's best, he says, in their eyes to be as conservative as possible and do as they've been recommended since they themselves aren't, quote, experts. And so we get tons of people marching lockstep with draconian measures from D.C.-based central planners who think they can organize society like some pieces on a chessboard. And he says the fatal conceit about such central planning is that the cure becomes worse than the disease. They create bigger problems downstream than the one they attempted to address. And so while the COVID-19 boogeyman prompts all kinds of guidelines and restrictions, we see increases in unemployment, domestic violence, 
mental health disorders, food insecurity, poverty, and more. Now, he clarifies here, and this is an important point because it's not about you guys are just against everything. No, he says, I have no problem with groups like the CDC sharing information about what they think is helpful. But Connor clarifies, I do have a big problem with people swallowing such suggestions wholesale, blindly accepting what is suggested as some sort of gospel to be religiously followed when, in fact, such suggestions often turn out to be wrong. Funny that. The experts are often wrong. Which brings me to an article from Jeff Minnick called Fighting Back in Our Age of Deceit. He says, let's face it, no one likes to be caught in a lie. The husband who says he has to work late is entangled with his secretary and gets caught. The kid who tells his parents he's going to go study with a friend and winds up drunk and arrested. Getting snared in a fabrication is never pleasant. Often those who shove the truth into the basement will, when apprehended, try to weasel their way out of that falsehood by making excuses or by adding distortion to their deceptions. He says they'll point a finger of blame at someone else, sometimes at the one who nabs them, and explain why they can't be held responsible for some disaster. Others just go on spinning stories, covering up with more and more lies. Well, Jeff Minnick says Americans are facing a barrage of lies and half-truths on many fronts. So let's look at some of the deceivers engaged in covering up the truth of what they did. First up is the Chinese Communist Party. Its cover-up of the epidemic from the beginning is damning. They underreported infections and deaths from the virus, allowed international travel to continue, even while knowing there was the potential for a pandemic, and began a disinformation campaign to deflect blame for this disaster. Next, some of our governors and mayors have deceived, instituting lockdowns and stay-at-home policies to, quote, flatten the curve so that coronavirus victims would not overwhelm our hospitals. Now, that was weeks ago. Yet many Americans remain blocked from their normal social lives with their businesses, schools, and churches closed. We flattened the curve. Now some in the government seem intent on flattening us. Here's another current example. The case of General Flynn has so many lies and liars attached to it that we're hard-pressed to unravel them. As the evidence grows that some officials attempted to railroad Flynn and damage or destroy the Trump presidency, lies are flying faster and thicker than those honeybees that chased Uncle Billy Bob when he accidentally smacked their hive with a tractor. The disinformation, misinformation, fairy tales, and other concoctions emanating from some of our government agencies are overwhelming and endanger our republic. And finally, he says there are the major news outlets ranging from, ranging rather from the New York Times to CNN. They don't necessarily lie. They just don't tell the truth. That the Trump-Russia connection was investigated and proven to be non-existent. They ignore. Many of them celebrate Governor Cuomo's battles against the virus, even though he has the worst track record on that front of any American governor. And none of these groups, the CCP, the governors and mayors, members of various intelligence and law enforcement agencies and news outlets can admit they've done wrong. They can't admit that they bungled certain matters, that in some cases they deliberately sought to conceal their wrongdoings, that they made enormous mistakes, which often caused more deaths from the vi- than, than from the virus, brought the American economy to its knees, and even damaged our constitutional rights. Meanwhile, he says, the rest of us are making our way through a cultural and political great dismal swamp without maps, compasses, or guides. Americans are vacillating between fear and rage, incredulity and depression. 
We've watched our society turn upside down, witnessed corruption at the highest levels of government, and have no idea what to believe from some of those trusted to report the news. So what can we do when faced with so many untruths? Well, he says it's time to buck up against these people, time to fight back. Whether you're liberal or conservative, Republican, Democrat or independent, whatever your religious creed or the color of your skin, it's time to start punching. Figuratively, the coronavirus is bad, but surrendering to these truth shapers, he says, is worse. He says, whenever possible, avoid buying goods made in China. We should contact our elected tin pot, tin pot dictators. Let them know we deplore what they're doing. Gather a group of friends and head for the shore. A governor declares universities closed for the fall. Leave that school and find another. Come November, remember to cast your ballot against these tyrants. Tired of the lies by the media? Cancel your subscription. Turn off your television news. Tell their advertisers you've done so. It's time to remember who we are. Time to remember ideals like liberty and justice for all. And Jeff Minnick says it's time to take the offensive. Trusted voices of truth and insight. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Hey, once again, welcome back to Loving Liberty. By the way, lines are open. It is, uh, do I dare say, it sounds so cliche, phone it in Friday. But it is phone it in Friday if you want to phone it in. That's what I do every day. I phone it in like it's Friday. (laughs) I kid. 801-331-8113 is the number. So, uh, yeah, we live in a time of deceit. And I think Jeff Minnick correctly identifies who some of the biggest offenders are in terms of deceiving us. And isn't it interesting, as he points out, it's not so much these outright lies. You know, the moon is made of cheese. <laughs> no, it's it's the fact that they just won't tell the truth or they omit certain inconvenient parts of the truth that would try to steer us uh, more towards the narrative that they're trying to steer us toward. So what do you do? You fight back. And one of the things that's most important in a time such as this is knowing how to think clearly and independently. Now, that doesn't mean that it's easy. I think it was Charlie Reese, one of my favorite writers from years ago, who talked about during times of crisis, that is the single most important duty we have as citizens, is to think clearly and independently. And his recommendation was turn off the TV, put down the newspaper, and spend more time at the library. Well, guess what? Since he wrote those words... Smartphones have become ubiquitous. Uh, The Internet is pretty much anywhere you are. You have access to so much information. Yeah, you have to be careful. There's a fair amount of crap out there on the Internet as well. But you can become very well informed if you want to. You can learn to think like an expert if you want to. And you don't have to wait for some expert to tell you that's it. That's what you're supposed to believe. You can do it for yourself. There's a terrific article by John Tierney. This was published on cityjournal.org, The Politics of Fear. And he's quoting another great, great writer by the name of Robert Higgs, an economist and writer who has just been so spot on time and time again. And I want you to consider what he has to say and, and what Robert Higgs has to say in terms of how fear is used as a tool to keep us from thinking a little too clearly or a little too independently, to keep us basically safely within the herd. John Tierney says, In the political response to the COVID-19 pandemic, 
everything is proceeding just as economist Robert Higgs has foreseen. But he says that doesn't make it any easier for him to watch it. Higgs says, I have an overwhelming feeling that I'm reliving a bad experience I've lived through several times before, only this time it's worse. And he says, I have no doubt that even if the current situation plays out in the best imaginable way, it will leave an abundance of legacies for the worse so far as people's freedom is concerned. Higgs sees government as usual, vastly expanding during the crisis, and he's sure it will not shrink down to shrink back to its former scale once the crisis is over. It never does, as he famously documented in his 1987 book, Crisis and Leviathan, Critical Episodes in the Growth of American Government, and in later works exploring this ratchet effect. By surveying the effects of wars, financial panics, and other crises over the course of a century, Higgs showed that most government growth occurs in sporadic bursts during emergencies, when politicians enact, well, what they call temporary programs and regulations that never get fully abolished. New Deal bureaucracies and subsidies persisted long after the Great Depression, for example. And the U.S. military didn't revert to its pre-war size after either of the world wars. Now, besides charting the growth of government, Higgs identified the fundamental psychological cause. He recognized the political significance of the negativity effect, also called negativity bias. The universal tendency of negative events and emotions to affect us more strongly than positive ones. John Tierney says, in our recent book on this bias, The Power of Bad, social psychologist Roy Baumeister and I drew on Higgs' work to argue that the greatest problem in politics is what we call the crisis crisis, the never-ending series of crises, real or imagined, that are hyped by the media and lead to cures too often worse than than the disease. And it's a perpetual problem because it's so deeply rooted in human psychology. As Higgs explained in a 2005 essay, The Political Economy of Fear. By the way, there are some great links within this article. So when I put this in the show notes, it would be worth your time. Click on the article and follow the links. So much to learn here. Higgs wrote, to tell people not to be afraid is to give them advice that they cannot take. Our evolved physiological makeup disposes us to to fear all sorts of actual and potential threats, even those that exist only in our imagination. Now, the people who have the effrontery to rule us, who call themselves our government, understand this basic fact of human nature, and they exploit it. They cultivate it. Rulers instinctively heed Machiavelli's advice, it is much safer to be feared than loved, a 16th century formulation of the negativity effect. Higgs wrote, without popular fear, no government could endure more than 24 hours explaining how the earliest kingdoms were founded by warriors who augmented their authority with the help of religious leaders. The warrior element of government puts the people in fear for their lives, and the priestly element puts them in fear for their eternal souls. These two fears compose a powerful compound, sufficient to prop up governments everywhere on earth for several millennia. Then, in the 19th century, came new fears to justify the creation of the welfare state. As Higgs noted, people were told that government can and should protect them from all sorts of workaday threats to their lives, livelihoods, and overall well-being. Threats of destitution, hunger, disability, unemployment, illness, lack of income in old age, germs in the water, toxins in the food, and insults to their race, sex, ancestry, creed, and so forth. Nearly everything that the people feared, the government then stood poised to ward off. As eager as politicians are to expand the government, in normal times they're able to do so only slowly. 
People always fear tax increases, and a proposal to benefit one special interest will typically be opposed by another, creating a political logjam. But when a new threat like COVID-19 suddenly arises, well, the logjam is broken. As Higgs described in a 2009 essay, The Political Economy of Crisis Opportunism. Higgs observed a crisis alters the fundamental conditions of political life. Like a river suddenly swollen by the collapse of an upstream dam, the ideological current becomes bloated by the public's fear and apprehension of impending dangers and its heightened uncertainty about future developments. Bewildered people turn to the government to resolve the situation, demanding that government officials do something to repair the damage already done and prevent further harm. Politicians, aided by media hysteria, seize the opportunity to dispense funds, create new programs, and enact proposals that had languished before the crisis. The current pandemic, for instance, has given protectionists a new excuse for restricting international trade. Progressives in Congress have tried to create new protections for workers and immigrants, subsidies for alternative energy, and mandates for diversity programs. Trillions have been added to the national debt with little debate, because criticism becomes taboo during a crisis. During World War II, the conversation stopper was, don't you know there's a war on? Today, it's repurposed by substituting pandemic for war and accompanied by solemn declarations like, a human life is priceless. The COVID-19 lockdown measures are supposed to be temporary, but Higgs expects them to endure due to another consequence of the negativity effect because bad events have more impact than good ones. People strive harder to avoid losses than they do to achieve gains. So as a result, any new government program typically creates a powerful coalition committed to its preservation, an iron triangle consisting of a legislative committee, an administrative bureaucracy, and a group of special interests reaping benefits from the program. Higgs wrote, attempts to eliminate or diminish emergency programs run up against a fundamental principle of political action. People will fight harder to keep an established benefit then they will fight to obtain an identical benefit in the first place. This asymmetry assists every effort to hang on to iron triangles created or enlarged during a crisis. Now, John Tierney asks, could this crisis turn out differently? Fans of smaller government have been cheered as this, by the suspension of hundreds of harmful regulations during the pandemic, such as the FDA's rules slowing test development and laws restricting telemedicine and preventing doctors from working outside their home states. Couldn't some of these rules disappear permanently now that people have seen the alternative? Maybe. But Higgs is convinced that the overall result will still be dreadful. He says, I believe the crisis will produce a net increase in the government's size, scope, and power. That includes regulations. Some may be scrapped, but those that have been set aside in response to the crisis will likely be reinstated after the crisis has waned. Because the political forces that caused them to be created in the first place will still exist. The same special interest lobbies, same politicians selling favors to the highest bidder, same capacity to slip anti-competitive clauses into huge statutes, and so forth. He says the only way to curtail such overreach is to shrink the power of the state, and he says it will be a cold day in hell when that happens. And it certainly won't happen anytime soon, given the unprecedented shutdown of the economy and abrogation of civil liberties, mostly done with widespread approval according to public opinion surveys. John Tierney says it may seem astonishing for Americans to surrender their freedom so willingly, but Higgs isn't surprised. We'll come back to his commentary in just a few moments. This is Loving Liberty. 
If you'd like to join the conversation, do so at 801-331-8113. We'll be back right after these messages. Welcome back to Loving Liberty, 801-331-8113. So a couple more thoughts here from John Tierney. And he actually is, uh, is borrowing some, some wonderful light from Robert Higgs, a brilliant economist who I think may be one of the most uh, rational voices of our time when it comes to understanding political economy, where, where people and commerce and government all converge. This is a quote from uh, from Robert Higgs about why he wasn't surprised Americans are, are so willing to f- surrender their freedom. He says Americans, for the most part, are so liable to be uh, to being terrified by government agencies and their kept media that they lose all judgment when told they lose almost all judgment when told that a horrible threat of mass death hangs over them. And he says, I foresee the worst depression since the great the worst depression since the Great Depression right around the corner. That alone should be enough to bring forth a host of bad government policies with long-lasting consequences. Many such policies have already been adopted, but he says much more awaits us along these lines. And John Tierney says, I fear he's right, but at least we have his warnings to guide us in this crisis. While the negativity effect is wired into the primal region of our brains, we also have the rational capacity to override it. We could learn from history and gain a new appreciation for a much-quoted line from Franklin Delano Roosevelt's first inaugural address. When FDR said the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, he was offering excellent but incomplete advice. Besides fearing our own irrationality, we should fear leaders who exploit it during a crisis. Man, I hope that rings as true for you as it does for me. I'll have links to this in the show notes. I encourage you, check it out. I think you'll find it worth your time. Now, we spend a lot of time talking about coronavirus, and understandably so. To me, there is a far more dangerous specter looming on the horizon, and it's not due to coronavirus, but due to the actions that uh, some politicians have taken and some policy people have taken in response to coronavirus. So they may try to blame it, but you got to remember, these are policies they freely chose to implement in response to what they said was, well, we had no choice. We had to do this, except there were certain policies they'd been doing a long time before anybody ever heard of coronavirus. I'm talking about monetary policy. And there's a terrific article from the hosts of the Words and Numbers podcast, Anthony Davies and James R. Harrigan from the Foundation for Economic Education. Massive inflation may be coming because the U.S. government has cornered itself into a fiscal endgame. The subtitle here, Years of Deficit Spending, has made monetary policy a slave to fiscal policy. Here's why we need to pay attention. They say the federal government is moving into the final stages of its fiscal life. Deficits have gotten so enormous that the Federal Reserve simply prints the money the government needs. Why? Because that's the only option left on the table. For years, we have warned that continued deficit spending would paint the Federal Reserve into a corner wherein monetary policy would become a slave to fiscal policy. 
to avoid government default, confiscatory taxes, government shutdown, or a combination of all three, the Federal Reserve has reached a point wherein it has little choice but to monetize federal deficits. Sooner or later, we will all pay the price in the form of massive inflation. Now, here's some ex- explanation. And keep in mind, these are one is a political economist, another one is an economist. These guys know what they're talking about. Total reserves in the U.S. banking system reveal what the Federal Reserve has done. Total reserves include all the cash in the bank's vaults, plus banks' deposits at the Federal Reserve. The Fed is to banks what banks are to people. So banks' deposits at the Fed are roughly how much money banks have in their checking accounts at the Fed. From 1985 until August 2008, total reserves averaged around $50 billion. Through three rounds of quantitative easing, following the 2008 housing crash, the Federal Reserve increased banks' total reserves to $2.8 trillion. That's a 5,500% increase. But see, reserves aren't the money supply. Reserves are what the banking system uses to construct the money supply. The money supply increases not when reserves increase, but when banks loan out the additional reserves to customers. So prior to 2008, banks would typically loan out almost all of their reserves, holding back around 3% is what's called excess reserves. Excess reserves are to a bank as an inventory is to a manufacturer, a buffer meant to absorb fluctuations in consumer demand. But after 2008, things changed. Banks started holding more excess reserves, a lot more, And since 2008, banks have been holding more than 90% of their reserves as excess. This is because starting in 2008, it became much less costly for banks to maintain excess reserves. And this is due to two, possibly three things. First, historically low interest rates made it less profitable for banks to lend. Second, the Financial Services Regulatory Relief Act of 2006 authorized the Federal Reserve to begin paying interest on money that banks deposited in their Fed accounts. That's something the Fed hadn't done before. Third, economic uncertainty following the 2008 crash and the long road to recovery made lending less attractive. These things gave banks an incentive to keep more of their reserves in their accounts at the Fed rather than loaning them out to their borrowers. Thus, banks' excess reserves increased. Massively increasing banking reserves was like loading the inflation gun. But pulling the trigger would require banks to loan out those reserves. Because of the increased incentive for banks to hold excess reserves, banks haven't yet pulled the trigger. That explains why we haven't seen multi-thousand percent inflation following the multi-thousand percent increase in bank reserves. At least for now, banks are preventing the increase in reserves from translating into an increase in the money supply That's what's holding back inflation. Now, inflation occurs when the money supply grows faster than the economy. From the mid-1980s to all the way to August of 2008, the money supply grew at an average annual rate of around 5%. By comparison, the economy grew at an average annualized rate of around 3%. So other things being equal, the difference between those two numbers should give us the inflation rate for the economy as a whole. Indeed, overall inflation, as measured by the implicit price deflator, averaged around 2% over that period. But then came 2008. In an attempt to stimulate the economy following the 2008 housing crash, the federal government ran several trillion-dollar deficits, and the Federal Reserve increased bank reserves to help fund that massive borrowing. From the end of 2008 through February of 2020, the money supply grew at an annualized rate of around 10%. 
about double the rate at which it grew prior to 2008. Meanwhile, the economy slowed to an average 2% annual growth rate. Other things equal, this should have given us an annual inflation rate of around 8%. But overall, inflation actually declined to some th- somewhat to an average of less than 2% per year. So what happened? Where was the inflation? Well, it turns out the other things weren't equal. What changed was the velocity of money, the rate at which the average dollar changes hands in the purchase of domestically produced goods and services. The velocity of money declined by almost as much as the money supply increased. Inflation is like the probability of being in a highway accident, wherein money velocity is the speed at which cars are traveling and money supply is the number of cars on the road. Increasing the number of cars on the road increases the likelihood of an accident only if cars maintain the same speed. But if you double the number of cars while simultaneously cutting their speeds in half, the likelihood of an accident remains about the same. And so too here. Starting in 2008, the money supply grew faster, but people and businesses responded by decreasing the velocity of money. Consequently, inflation didn't change much. But why did the velocity of money fall? Well, they say one explanation, or at least one possible explanation, is that the money supply increased, or as it increased, the increase largely went into exchanges of financial assets rather than exchanges of goods and services. If this is what happened, then we should see an increase in the prices of financial assets rather than an increase in the price of goods and services, because prices of financial assets are not included in inflation calculations, so we wouldn't observe an increase in the official inflation numbers. Indeed, market watchers have been wondering, how can it be that stock prices fell with the advent of COVID lockdowns, but then recovered almost half of that decline within three short weeks? The longer the lockdown drags on, the greater the number of bankruptcies will be. They say another possible explanation for why stock prices partially recovered and have since remained stable, or at least relatively stable, is that the increase in the money supply made its way into financial markets, putting upward pressure on stock prices rather than markets for goods and services, leaving prices for goods and services unchanged or falling. So what's to come? What does it mean for the future? Well, eventually that money has got to make its way, or that has made its way into the stock market, will make its way back into the markets for goods and services. When that happens, and that will happen as things start to return to normal and people start spending more freely, under normal circumstances, the Fed would be on the lookout for this and would start to contract reserves so as to prevent inflation. That's what they've been doing since 2014 until early this year. But there's a new factor at play, and that is the federal government ran its first trillion-dollar deficits in response to the housing crisis. But now increased spending has become the new normal. And that new normal will have the Federal Reserve printing money to pay for Washington's runaway spending. And sooner or later, that will give us sustained and significant inflation. The time to fix the problem passed a long time ago. I'll have a link to this article in the show notes. It is well worth your while to read it and maybe prepare. 